This is a mental health podcast, so difficult topics may arise. Please proceed with caution. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Getting Better, Stories of Mental Health. I'm Micheline Malouf. And I'm Nadia Desi, and we're your hosts and licensed therapists here to destigmatize mental health one episode at a time. In each episode, we dive into our guests' special experiences with mental health, coping mechanisms, and how they have embraced their own mental health journey. And today we're speaking with Wilmer Valderrama. He is an American actor, producer, and television personality. He is best known for the role of Fez in the sitcom That 70s Show and as Carlos in From Dusk Till Dawn, the series. Today, Wilmer talks to us about his experience as an immigrant in the United States, the stigma that exists in the Latino community, and fatherhood. Welcome, Wilmer. Thanks for joining us. How are you? How are you really feeling today? So the last 24 hours have been incredible. You know, I had a, the whole family come together and we shared an amazing de- meal, not to date this episode, but, you know, we had Thanksgiving dinner yesterday. And, you know, and in that dinner, we acknowledged what Thanksgiving really is. And as we continue to rewrite what that means for us and what Thanksgiving should really say about our Native uh, communities, um, that was actually very important. So yesterday, instead of a traditional, you know, uh, giving thanks, we acknowledge our Native uh, ancestors, uh, the land that we're on, and we acknowledge the fact that in moving forward, every Thanksgiving should be about the remembrance of the, you know, of our great-grandfathers and ancestors who actually paved the way for us to thrive on this land. So, so that's been really great. Um, and instead of doing a tradition of Turkey, um, which that was obviously present, we did a lot more Latin American food, um, which was kind of a way to to go back to our roots. So the last 24 hours have been great. So this morning I woke up and I went to the gym and, and I did my one hour a day and and uh, I feel pretty good. I feel really great. That's amazing. Did you, did you all plan and like have a conversation before Thanksgiving that you were going to talk about it in this way and kind of, or is no, it I, just natural? I really, I really just ripped it like a bandit. You know, I think I, I feel my other family members were here to, to celebrate Thanksgiving and, and they entered a whole different space. You know, I think that that's the best way. You know, I don't think you want to give anyone a warning of like, just so you know, we're going to do things a little differently. <laughs> no, it's just like, hey, here is how things are now. You know, let me introduce you to a new space, you know, uh, and you're in it already. So, you know, I don't need to invite you with that. Um, I don't give, I don't need to give you a warning from when you step into my space or my bubble or my home. You know, it's, uh, you know, you'll experience what you can when you're in in the space. And it went well. It went incredible, of course. Everyone, my wife is, uh, she's half Mexican, half white, you know, so her father, my father-in-law is straight up Mexican from Tijuana, you know, and my dad is uh, Venezuelan and raised in Colombia and my mom is Colombian, raised in Colombia and I was born in Miami. So it doesn't get more Latino than the household yesterday, you know? Mm-hmm. So everyone was more than aware, more excited um, to actually uh, embrace that space for what it really was. You know, so it was really fun. And then after that, we got into a traditional long dinner where, you know, a little tequila, a little, (laughs) a little bit of everything. To get us started on this, I'm curious to know, what was your experience around mental health growing up? You know, for the Latino community, specifically when you grow in our countries, you're introduced to a level of trauma that I just don't think children are necessarily uh, exposed to. But ultimately, the the type of uh, uh, trauma you introduce when you're 
when you're a young kid in your country is, um, I mean, look, our six o'clock news, they're talking about decapitations and they're talking about, you know, uh, machine guns going off in school buses and like, you know, uh, and, and, you know, so a lot of the violence in our countries uh, are so much more traumatic at the first sight. And they're at the six o'clock news, you know, when you talk about the news that we hear here, you know, it's, you know, this is really the happiest place on earth. There is a level of darkness that comes with the, with America. There's a lot of, obviously, never would have minimized, you know, anybody else's trauma is just as big as anybody else's trauma. So there's no, like, this is not a competition, you know, but what I'm saying is at a very younger age, you're, you're taught to process things for what they are more than like what they mean to you. There's no conversation of like, how did you, how did this thing you saw make you feel? Mm-hmm. It's just like, here's how you endure it. You know, you turn the music a little louder. Maybe some of it is like you're burying some thoughts and some feelings, you know, and therefore that's why, you know, we're explosive and we're mass, you know, we're passionate as people, who knows. But I think a lot of our values when it comes to, you know, how we process things at a younger age in our countries, in many ways, build a, a level of strength and resilience that I think allow us to travel to other countries and, and be everything we could possibly be and uh, make it <laughs> the craziest dreams a reality. Um, because we we have that level of understanding where we come from. So what you're saying is that obviously you're not comparing trauma or anything like that, but there was a, a point, like if you think about the stuff that you were watching on the news and just the experiences of growing up Latino, you know, watching some of the reality that people in the Latin community just experience in general is pretty traumatizing in itself, but you don't notice that as a child, obviously, but as you get older and look back at these experiences, would you say that it was something that impacted you and your mental health? I read about racism, you know, back in our countries and the way that racism is interpreted in our countries is mostly like class differences and stereotypes. Um, but when I came here and I saw how the, you know, the, the threat of the racism and how long it's been, you know, under the veil of, of our country and how institutionally and subliminally and connivingly has been actually a part of a lot of the building blocks of this country. Um, that was really disturbing, right? Because as a young man, you don't think, like, you don't think America is racist when you live in a different country. I mean, now we, the signal of what we're enduring as a society has traveled around the world. But before that, in the 90s, you lived in a different country. You never really heard about these type of things, but you heard certain incidents, certain injustices, you know. But but when you get here, and specifically, I think in the last 10 years, so much has been discovered. But going back to like how it impacted me and how I so I think that it's like a you know like a like an extreme meter, you know, like there's a dial. You are at 11 when you are in our countries, you know, the level of pressure, the level of stress, you know, the level of trauma that you see is at 11. And then you come to America as an immigrant and somehow the dial goes down to like a six, uh, to a six for us immigrants, for everyone in America, we're at 11 all the time, you know? Again, not minimizing or comparing, this is not competition. I just say my perspective, and I hope that what I'm saying is welcome to your listeners as perspective from someone that didn't have his childhood in this country, right? So my perspective is from someone who just arrived to a country that didn't share the magnitude or the 
severity or uh, the intensity of some of the traumas that we endure as Latin Americans in some of our countries. So when you get in here, you see that. You breathe a little easier, you know, you navigate a little easier, and all of a sudden you realize that anything is possible, right? If you're not at 11 like you were in your countries, then how bad can it be? <laughs> so then you embrace a philosophy that you just go, you know, if you woke up this morning, which I've always said this, if you woke up this morning, you're already winning. How much more winning can I do today now, you know? And that is, that is I think, uh, uh, probably the best uh, description to a Latino. You know, we're very grateful to breathe. We're very grateful to be in this country. We're very grateful to to have an opportunity to feed our families. You know, and uh, so we don't look at beyond that. Beyond that, it's it's you know, it's a. I think we understand that some things are out of our control. So what we can do is just get up in the morning. And so I think when you ask me about like how it impacted me, I think it's impacted me in in a, in a number of ways. One, I would say perspective, right? And number two, I think that it has given me an infrastructure to uh, process, you know, things that are presented to me in whatever level. People always, you know, comment on like, do it in the face of the craziest things that are happening personally, whether it's family death, whether it's trauma, whether it's losing, whether it's betrayal, whatever it is that happens in your life. How are you not a nervous breakdown? And I, I just think it's perspective. It's being grateful to just honestly be alive and that's one thing my dad definitely, definitely celebrated every day uh, as I was growing up. Well, that's that's really powerful. And um, as you were talking about that, I was thinking when you asked about impact and then started, uh, you know, explaining your experience. Um, I, I have a similar. I, I I moved immigrated to the U.S. at eight from Venezuela, actually, and um, the level of trauma I saw there which is what made us come here, like that impact that you said, like, you know, you're at like a stress level up here and then you kind of go down here. I remember, you know, safety was a huge thing. Like you come here and you no, long, no longer have this like danger that you're living in. But um, at the same time, I didn't know that I was different. Just like, like you didn't know, you know, you don't know as a child that you're different until people start treating you different. You don't even realize it as a kid. Like looking back at it now, I'm like, oh, that's why that person acted in this way. They they didn't know how to handle it. And so the impact is like mental health in the mental health world is like insecurity, self-esteem stuff, you know, yeah. um, just feeling like, just feeling like not good enough, which was my, this is my own personal stuff, but it's just something that I think as children, we don't really realize because you, you're right. You have that safety level. You also have a cultural uh, blueprint that when you come to America, on purpose, it's undone. And when you fracture the infrastructure of your culture, that's when a lot of these insecurities and inferiorities, you know, come in. Because when you come from your countries, you love your music, you love your food, and you got out here and you're like, I guess I got to be American now. Mm -hmm. You forget that you're already an American. We're South Americans, Central Americans, North Americans, but somehow you have to be American is the definition of the American flag. And that's okay because you know what, like you, you got to also assimilate to your home, right? But I think it's when you stray away from your roots that you are introduced to this, you know, society type of, uh, uh, you know, herb, you know, mentality where like uh, everything about, you know, uh, and look, I'm going to say this, social media is not the devil. Okay. News is not evil. Right. 
because like art, all of it is subjective. So if you have, uh, if you work on the rooting of who you are and your blueprint at a very younger age, which in Latinos, you're, you're born dancing. You already know what you are when you're born. You're born like dancing. You're born speaking Spanish. You're doing arts. You know, there's schools and literature. They're teaching poetry and metaphors immediately. So you are, you are like a, a, at, a, at a level of, of intuitive with yourself because you're exploring it through the arts and through, through social and through music and through, you know, through culture. When you come out here, that gets diluted a little bit because you think you got to go away from it in order to be normal out here. And this country has never told you that you needed to be, you know, anything different. It's just society has felt that you got to have to make a choice, but yeah. you know, to, for who, right. You never ask yourself like, why am I doing this again? For who? For him? Why am I assimilating to everyone? And because you don't ask that question, you just do it. Right. I mean, I was guilty of that when I turned into my early twenties, you know, I mean, I had my co-stars on that seven show were really cool, super fun individuals. And did I want to dress like them? No. Did they wanted me to and made fun of what I dressed or like, yes. I had the same pair of lead jeans and I had the same, you know, the same white t-shirt and Payless shoes, you know, and I was in the first couple of years, I wasn't buying Gucci in the first couple of years of the show, but then eventually I developed the taste that went along with who I ran with, you know, not until years later, I decided that, you know, wait a minute, like, do I really need a Lamborghini? <laughs> I ever really wanted one, you know? Um, and, and these type of things is things that you, you have to, uh, wake up to, uh, in America. And some of us just have to go through that process in order to come full circle and, and, and become what you are. I really appreciate the perspective here. Sorry. I'm just sitting in the background, listening to you both, because I know you share very similar stories. So I don't want to jump in and interrupt, but I am curious when mental health became part of your life and how it became part of your life. Was it when you were around 14? Is that when you started processing things? Was it a little bit later? As an artist myself, I've been always singing, dancing, and acting since I was six years old. I did it in school. I did it in Venezuela. I always had a scapegoat, you know? I had an, I always had an outlet. And I think that's important to mention because when you, when you ask a question on like, when did you identify mental health for you? I don't think the conversation mental health was ever part of any of our upbringings. And I would, I would dare to say that in, neither in yours. This mental health conversation has become an actual label in the last probably 10 years of discovery of all the different forms of either meditation or, or processing, you know, and how we kind of better our engine to, you know, to execute when we feel some type of way. Before that, there was music. There was a night out. There was a, I'm going to eat a chocolate cake, you know, like, I mean, we were surviving. We were surviving. Now, where's there a lot of rooted stuff in there and all that? Yes. But for the most part, you know, we kind of fell back into our traditional outlets. Um, and some of those were given up when we came to America and we went to different countries. We didn't have those outlets anymore. We didn't have like you know, work from Monday to Friday and blow all your check on Saturday and Sunday because that's just what you do as a Latin guy, you know, or a Latin girl. You're just like, you You work, you pay the bills. And on Saturday, you celebrate, you get it through the week. You you forfeit all that over here. People go, I can't wait to Saturday. I'm going to go for a hike. 
Latinos never said that, right? We don't say that culturally. So I think that, you know, when I go back to that, I've always had an, an, you know, an outlet. If I wasn't dancing in school, if I wasn't acting on stage, if I wasn't, you know, writing something or making a stupid little film, you know, uh, as a kid, um, if I wasn't talking to imaginary friends in the backyard, you know, like I was eating in the kitchen with my mom or, uh, you know, or playing soccer, you know? So I think it's important as you grow up to have these outlets where you can one, be in community two challenge yourself to be different among a group of individuals and not just be the same at home. And I think that's important to bring up. Uh, it's also even more critical to also allow yourself to explore what your strengths are really early. And I certainly say that this, and I say this again, if you need the time to figure out what your life should be and will be, or what kind of mornings you want to wake up to, or what kind of career, or what kind of, you know, what kind of passion you really want to follow and what's going to make you happy to do something. What is the thing that makes you happy for seven days a week while you're going on from your, from your nine to five? And you need to take the time to do that, do it. What I'm saying is that if you're a young individual right now and you have the safety of whatever comfort zone you've been granted, whether it's a grandma raising you, whether it's your aunt, whether it's your mom or dad, or just your mom, your single dad, or whatever it is, and you have been given the gift of time, and if you don't have to somehow wake up before 10 a.m., you get time to really strengthen and really sharpen the tools of your passions and you know of your interests so that's what i would say i would say that like i, I at a very young age i you know i knew that uh, i needed to sharpen up my my tools and i was relentless about figuring out what i was going to be and mostly because i owed it to my family you know i think you know seeing your parents sacrifice so much doesn't make you just sit on your hands you know seeing your parents sell everything they had and bring it to america and leave everything they knew just to give us runway. We're talking about like the privilege of just being born, living in this country. And like Nadia and I have talked many times on this podcast about how you said you had outlets, like, you know, dancing, doing like family, even like eating cake with mom in the kitchen. You know, those things are very powerful in keeping us healthy and alive. And I know that that's not the story of many people or, you know, some people even immigrating or not immigrating may be here and not have those outlets, may not have safety at home, may not have the uh, privileges of being able to have those things. But if you do, and you're somebody that's living in this, in a situation or environment where you do have access to uh, somebody in your home that loves you and cares for you, uh, even if you don't have a lot of money or you don't have, you know, money for extracurricular activities, you know, that in itself is already super powerful. Uh, to to keep you mentally healthy and um, you know keep you from from struggling as much as maybe you would if you didn't have that. So it sounds like you had a lot of those um, extra uh, cushions to keep you uh, healthy. I mean, yeah, I, I wouldn't call them cushions because they they seemed like safety nets. There, there was nothing safe about what we were doing in America. <laughs> there was nothing safe about leaving you know, the early 90s, uh, the mid early to mid 90s uh, Venezuela and coming to the United States, as you know, there's nothing like Cushing and warm and cozy about any of that. 
there was a level of urgency to really figure this shit out, you know, like really understanding, like, what are we as a family and what, and what are, you know, how do we divide and conquer? And the first thing we needed to do as, as children was to learn how to speak English so we can defend our family. I, my dad could barely speak English. My mom definitely doesn't speak English. So I was, my sister and I were the first ones to learn how to speak English. And, you know, in the reason why is because your first line of defense is to be able to answer the phone, answer the door, order from the menu, you know, um, get instructions, get directions, you know, ask for the bathroom for your mother. Like these are the first things you do when you're laying your, 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 you know, uh, 12 years old, 13 years old, you know, you come to America, you got to figure this out for them. And meanwhile, you're a child. And, and you're a child. Yeah. You know, and you're a child, but it really does force you to understand your contribution to your family. There are privileges to, to, you know, to the, that configuration, but I would also offer to everyone who may be listening to feel like, well, you had this, you had that, you had a loving home, you had this, whatever. You know, my sister was a single mother and that made a very, compli- for a very, you know, Latino household, that made a very uh, complicated configuration for her. She needed to understand how to like be herself. You know, she had a baby when she was 19 years old and it was just off of high school. And, you know, now he's 22 and he's an incredible young man and, and it worked out, but, you know, she didn't let the fact that she was a single mom in a very humble household, you know, and trying to figure things out to actually let her thrive. You know, she's an amazing casting director now and she's killing, she's doing her thing. But I say that because I want everyone who's listening to have a level of empowerment, knowing that no matter what your current situation is, the only thing you need need is what is your image what is your what is your mount everest because until you realize what your mount everest is you can't start walking towards it you can't start hiking if you don't have a hill if you don't have the the, you know the top of a mountain you you don't know what to aim for so i would encourage everyone no matter what situation you're in whether it's a you know not a healthy relationship with and your spouse or, you know, family or friendships that are suppress you, that will just make fun of the craziest ideas you have. You know, I would suggest that you work on your environment and then really try to be free with your thoughts. Maybe your environment seems to be a little suffocating and suppressing. But if your mind can continue to work on the freedom to picture what you want and picture what you deserve, you will subliminally make your way there. You know, but you got to have an image and you got to paint a picture of what you really, really need and what you want and what will make you happy. Like if you you got to do an inventory and we'll talk about more about inventories a little later, but I think that's. That is extremely powerful. And I think our listeners will really appreciate that and everything that you shared, including your experience thus far. Um, A question that I have is that time after time, we hear that there's a lot of stigma in the Latino community surrounding therapy and psychiatry. Why do you think that is? I mean, I think it comes from the same old school traditional thing. Put some dirt on it. You're sick, drink a Dr. Pepper. You know, you don't go to the doctor until it really hurts. That's a cultural thing, right? There's also a lot of shame that comes from not having it together. Like there's always that's two, three people in the family that are little lay bloomers and they just get shit on, right? Because they're just, oh, I haven't figured it out. They're 20. I still haven't gone to college. Or like, or like they barely graduated high school and needless to say that maybe three years later, they create a tech company and they're a billionaire, you know? 
but you wouldn't know that because your your own family could be your worst enemy. That's the thing that is the most demoralizing. I mean, I had so many family members who would literally hear from my dad, oh, my son is doing theater. He's thinking about acting a little more and, you know, he's doing commercials. And they're like, they would just straight up, oh, what are they going to do? Underwear commercials? Ha, ha, ha. And they just start making fun of it. And, and the first thing they would say to my parents is like, well, my son is in honors for mathematics. The, my daughter has a straight A report card that are, this is my, my dad's brothers and, and, you know, my mom's uh, sisters, you know, they, they just, the first thing they did is, is, is grades. That's what they brag on each other. About. They got grades. Well, my son is, um, you know, uh, did another high school play and, you know, he, he has a couple of A's, he has a couple of B's. He's really bad at math. He's going to summer school for, for math every year. <laughs> But it's a shame that your family puts on to you for, you know, it's it's insane, right? Like it's the, the, the shame of, of not doing it like how they think or their definition of success is. You know, when I look back at how I turned out, you know, all of a sudden everyone forgot that that all those things came out of their mouth and all of a sudden they always knew. <laughs> you know? They knew you were going to yeah. be a star. <laughs> They knew, oh my God, he was always dancing. He was always doing theater. Oh my God, he was always so funny. And mm -hmm. look at him now. Oh my yeah. God, no. I, I forgive, I forgave everyone, but I don't forget. Uh-huh. <laughs> They're listening now, huh? <laughs> I don't forget. I don't forget that at one point, if I hadn't had a stronger foot in, I mean, I could be doing something else. Mm -hmm. Were your parents, I, I know, you know, they're sharing with your family like oh he did another play were they always supportive was it just like the extended family that would kind of yeah, compete yeah yeah i mean i was very responsible and you know i wasn't an idiot i wasn't trying to cause my parents any more stress you know i mean i, I saw i was the first born right i was the oldest in the family so i just i knew every dollar that we didn't have i knew when there was you know the last popsicle in the refrigerator you know And I'm, it, that's worth saying out loud because awareness um, turns into um, self-reflection and then it eventually turns into contribution because when you ignore the realities of your home, when you ignore the struggle and the stress of your family, specifically your mom and dad or mom or dad or whoever is taking care of you, When you ignore that because your problems are so big, even though you're not paying rent, even though you're not the one paying, and the only thing they're asking of you is to just get good grades, please pass, like, please just graduate. That's a disservice to your journey. That's a disservice to the struggle because the struggle is what puts the brakes, the brakes on the foundation. And if you don't look at struggle and, and, and look at it head on and try to build a solution for it, how are you growing? And that's why all of a sudden we need more time to figure it out. And, and, you know, my nephew has been figuring it out since he was 12 years old. And not because he's looking at me as an example and all that. And I'm sure there's a level of, uh, of that. But mostly because he knew that in this family, you know, work now and party later. Like there's always time. That's what Saturday and Sunday is for, you know. So it, and for him, it was important that he understood all that stuff. I really like what you said when you said reflect, self-reflect and then awareness and then contribution. And I am processing it as you say it. And I think that could be applied to anything. Reflect about the situation, have awareness of what's going on and then 
contribute onto how you can change or how you can help it. That's really important. Everyone has a different way of processing. And when you have a shorter relationship with that, when that timeline and the streamline gets shorter and shorter, you can really start seeing things from bird's eye view. What you want to do is you want to create as much space as possible between you and the issue so you can truly identify for what it actually is and therefore you understand how manageable it could be. Is that something you apply to your own personal life? Everything, everything. You know, you 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 could say whatever you want, right? Like you could uh, post any problem, you know? And I think I'm a little annoying to my wife about this because I think that, you know, there'll be conversations and situations and I'm not at all affected. And I think there is a traditional feeling of like, why are you not reacting to this? Why are you not acknowledging this? And I think ultimately I only acknowledge what can be fixed. And that's annoying. Okay. <laughs> because the, the processing is, and I mean, this goes with every friendship. Where the, pro, the, the traditional process is that you got to dwell a little so you have comprehension so how much it hurts. So then you can really do something about it. I kind of skipped the whole, and maybe it's healthy, maybe it's not healthy, maybe this is a self-discovery moment for all of us here, but, <laughs> but I look at an issue, I look at a problem, I look at a high tense situation, and before I actually let it really hurt, I process it first, as opposed to let it hurt first. So I take a deep breath, and before I say a word, before I even, but if I even fathom to contribute to, the, to that energy source, I take two steps back, take a deep breath. I really process and I understand it. What does it really mean for all of this? What does it really mean for you? What does it really mean for me? And then I speak. Don't be selfish and be like, how does this make me feel? No, like, how does it make you feel? Let me process that. How do I translate it into how it should affect me? And now we can have this conversation. And um, this is something I've been doing I don't know, 20 years of my life. Before that, I couldn't. I like I couldn't tell you. I was just like, it makes me feel bad. <laughs> you know, and then it's like, uh, why are you doing this to me? You know? But then in the process, I realized that actions are driven by intentions. And as soon as you understand the intention of the action, because some intentions are not on purpose, some intentions are subliminal, some intentions are superficial, some intentions are not absolutely what um, you interpret, you know, from once you put your own shoes on, right? And that, that allows you to have breathing time, that allows you to have a, a moment of um, forgiveness. You know, I, I see a lot of people talking about, I forgive myself, so now I forgive you. That's a very popular thing that's going around now, right? I'm not, I'm not criticizing it, right? And I'm definitely not being cynic about it. But it is an interesting process when you think about what you're, and I'm sure you guys have heard this because this is a very popular thing. I forgive myself, so therefore I forgive you. Or I forgive you, so now I forgive myself. How much work did you do to come to that conclusion though? I mean, that's a question to this room, right? Like I love to ask you guys, like what is, what, how much work goes into to the outcome of that statement. Like how much work do you really want to do in order to say that? Because some people hashtag that first and then they, they can forgive and they can just move on because impersonally there was no consequences. 
where are the consequences before that statement? Like, you know, so there's a lot of these hacks to not process that are happening in this moment yes. society. We're literally hacking phrases just so we don't have to cope or become or uh, understand or deeply really understand like, what am I really? I'm okay to not be anything. We see it every day. We see that in therapy all the time of, yeah, I forgive them and I forgive myself or just trying to quickly put a Band-Aid over what actually is happening or overanalyzing emotions instead of actually feeling them because it's easier to think about them than it is to process and feel what you're experiencing. So that's definitely an issue going on. And we see it with so many phrases. Like I learned to love myself. So I love other people. I learned to forgive myself. So I forgive. And it's it's too cliche and not actually what needs to be done. And like, how, how are you really loving yourself? Yeah. Like, like what is the process? Like you go into the gym every day, you know, you meditate every afternoon, you read a chapter of your favorite book. Uh, Also, you go on a hike with your dog and you go on the top and you breathe the air it's like, is this your healing process? Because that's just maintenance. And I, I think that's like the smart attainable goals, right? Like you have the goal and then you have the the way that you're going to reach the goal. But I would add something to that. And it's like the question of why, why do you want that goal? Because I think a lot of us, it's normal for us to have a goal because that's what society said you should do or what, um, you know, everybody else is doing it. Or, you know, you don't really know why. Why do you want to lose weight, get stronger, camp in Utah? Like, why? So looking at your values, which can drive your life and your life's purpose, so that when you set goals, you're not miserable doing it. Because if if your goal is to go camping just because you think that'll rest you, but you don't really care for nature, then what's what's the purpose of it, right? So I think that's one step that a lot of people miss um, for everyone listening. It's like, ask yourself the question, why? Why do I want to do this? What do I value in life? Why is this a value for me? You know, because we're all different in, in those respects. And, and it doesn't have to be a complicated conversation, right? Because that already sounds like a lot of work just so I can go on a hike. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't have to be that complicated, right? When I look at everything in my company creatively, I ask my staff and my team and my executives all the time, if you were going to produce one show for the rest of your life, is it this one? If the answer is no, then it's not on the slate, right? Are you making this show because you cannot wait to watch it and that's why you're making it? If the answer is no, it shouldn't be on the slate of projects we're producing. And it's like everything, right? Like you don't, you know, I look at... um management and agencies in a very interesting way, right? I have a real great partnership with my agents and my managers, and I've had it for almost 20 years now. I have the same agents for 20 years. And the reason why it works is because, you know, it's about the collaboration of the why. So I'm going to say, you know, why do I need to achieve this? Why does this show create a signal? Like, why am I making this? Because, you know, they are handling 10 careers, one agent. I only have one. So you got to make some phone calls on your behalf. You got to get in the game. You got to roll up your sleeves. You can't just let somebody else market or showcase or or in an, in an entrepreneurial way, look at you as a brand. You got to make yourself a brand. And, and agencies and managers are, are only an element in a, part, in a creative partnership that, you know, that that is part of the journey. But the journey has to be walked by you. You know, you as an artist, you gotta make, you gotta put yourself in the game. 
And I say these things because we put so much emphasis on the responsibilities that somebody else's title, you know. So, so as a leader of my company, um, the concept is like, you know, what, what does this content have to say in order for us to make it? And it goes with everything in life, right? Like you got to just be efficient with your, with your decisions, you know, and like you only have one career, you only have one life. So if you know that some of the things you're doing are not getting you there fast enough, there may be some audit. There may be some inventory that you got to, you got to maybe open the backpack and see what's weighing you down a little bit. What do you really need to bring on this journey? What do you need to bring with you? And, and you got to pick yourself first because whoever can walk as fast as you can, those are the people that should be going on the ride with you. Earlier, you mentioned going on a hike and taking care of yourself and all of that was um, just maintenance and not the actual work. That should just be the fuel for your body. Um, what would you say the work actually looks like? We're so honored to have the chance to talk about something as important as immigration with Wilmer and how it impacted his childhood. Both he and Micheline shared similar yet different stories about their process of becoming American citizens, and we hope this is of benefit to our listeners. We love listening to Wilmer's take on how growing up, although he thought he wasn't the smartest in the family, he was artistic, driven, and provided for the family. And just as with our other guests on the show, mental health wasn't a topic he knew about while growing up. Mental health is just as important as our physical health. If you find yourself needing to talk to somebody, BetterHelp Online Therapy will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online. It's way more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. And it makes getting therapy easier. Just schedule your message, phone, or video session and complete it from your phone, in your car, in your home, or wherever you are. Huge shout out to Wilmer for telling the story of his life, for recognizing the trauma that he experienced, and for being willing to talk about getting help. There's a special offer for Getting Better listeners. Get 10% off your first month of online therapy at betterhelp.com slash getting better. That's better, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash getting better. Yeah, so I'm glad you asked that. Um, you know, really early on in certain recovery programs and all that, you know, they, they, you know, they embraced grab your notebook and make a list of all the things you don't want to live with. This is my philosophy is the one thing I kind of made up for myself. First, make a list of everything you want, as obnoxious and as crazy and as big as it could be. Just make a list of all the things that will make you so happy if you could just do this. And you'll be surprised that some of those are like even sleeping one more hour or like I want to swim at least once a week or I want to go to the beach twice a week. And then you go deeper, right? And then like I want to be able to you know, uh, travel more. I want to be able to do all these things and all that. So, so you make an inventory of all the things that you want in your life and that you want your life to be about. And then you make a second list, which is even more scary and a lot more vulnerable, right? Everything you don't want in your life, everything you know you don't need in your life. And that could be patterns. That could be routines. That could be uh, a perspective or a presumed, you know, uh, goal for your life, 
that somebody thought you're so good at this, you should do that. And you do an inventory of all the things you don't want in your life. And that's the first step into getting a little lighter on your feet to feeling like you don't have as much in the backpack, right? When you do this inventory, really believe in what I'm about to say, because when you make the inventory of the things you don't want in your life, as soon as you are writing them down, and I want you to write them down with a pen. I don't want you to do it on your phone or do it on your computer. I want you to grab a piece of paper and feel the work. Every letter takes a little bit of an effort. And with every letter of that word or sentence or the sentiment you want not in your life anymore, slowly, I promise you, they just disappear. They just go away. They go away because acknowledgement turns into manifestation. And that manifestation is your ability to visualize what you don't want in your life. And if you keep it in your brain, it could actually camouflage among the things that you feel you, know, you want because they, they, go, they go one and one together. All those things are in the same room and not until you give it its own space and give it its own space, you can't acknowledge how to drop some of those other things that don't really need to go along with you anymore or don't need to be in the backpack as you're going to this heavy hike. So, so that's where it starts to me. Um, it's the inventory. It's like, how do, you, how do you start this process? And I'll tell you everything with this. Like I have a vision board on my wall right now. And it's not the secret, right? But it's a vision board of all the projects that I want to make happen of all the companies that have to thrive and all the relationships in all my nonprofit organizations from Hardness, which I'm the co-founder of, from Voto Latino, who I'm the executive director of, you know, and their purposes. And I constantly think about what is that ecosystem? Why do they all have to exist on that same board? And I'm going to tell you something. I said, by the end of the year, all of that is going to come true. Well, I have the two biggest roles of my life that I single-handedly did without an agent and manager just happened three months ago. That was their January of last year. Because as soon as you visualize it and you see it on that board, every day you'll do a little bit more to get it closer to a reality. And unless you visualize it, they'll continue to be scrambled in your brain and it'll be hard to undo it. And the longer you leave it a scramble, the more you feel like they have to go along with the goal and what you want. And that I think to me is, is my, I think if you ask me what my secret sauce to achieving and all that, that, that's what it is. That's actually really powerful because like, I think people think manifestation is like this thing where you just like magically think of something and it happens and it's not, it's not magic. It's just, it's, I think vision boards are very powerful and the writing, I want to go back to writing everything down. When we write things down, it's like impossible to ignore it. I think it's easy for us to ignore things when we're just like numbing and and living day to day. We have our routines, we're on autopilot mundane life kind of starts to take in. But when you sit down and do that inventory where you're like writing all the things you want, all the things you don't want, it's almost like you can't ignore it anymore. And then adding that vision board component to it, you're right. It's like you look at it, you remember, so you don't forget. And every day you're going to do a little bit more of it, which is what quote unquote equals, I'm doing air quotes here for everyone listening, quote unquote manifesting, you know, it's really like, it's just putting in the effort. You're not letting your brain forget what's happening. So yeah, such and, great and, tools. And in the acting world, uh, there is a there's a process of memorizing lines. It's not for every actor, but some actors, they physically write out their dialogue. 
And as soon as they say action, it just flows out. Right? It's the acknowledgement of the text that imprints in your brain. Also, it's making your subconscious conscious. Like you're going around every day thinking about things that you don't want, and maybe they'll come up subconsciously without coming to the surface and realizing them. But the second you sit down, think about it, and write them down, now it's on your mind all the time. Now you're not putting up with things and you're letting things go. And you don't go to the grocery store um, before a holiday and you don't have a list. You're preparing for something big. Mm-hmm. You, gotta, you gotta put a list together because you don't want to forget the eggs and you don't want to forget the yeah. flowers. So it's the same thing, right? Like life yeah. should be your next holiday. Life should be your next yeah. And in order oh my to- gosh, that's so powerful. Like life should be your next holiday. I really love that because you're right. Like we prep so much for like Thanksgiving, Christmas, like write it all, all down, create the recipe. But when it comes to our lives, it's like. No, and if uh, you want to make the best meal of your life, you don't want to forget an ingredient. Right. I want to switch over a little bit to fatherhood because I know I know you're a father and um, I want to ask questions about how how was the transition for you to becoming a father? You know, I, I my nephew you know, was born when I was 20 years old, you know, so we kind of had a little bit of a practice run with him, you know, all hands on deck was with him, right? My mom, my dad, you know, my sisters and, and me, you know, so we, we helped raise this, raise this child. So I was more than thrilled and excited for something else, uh, which was to discover what was going to wake up in me once I held my child, you know, um, I love my nephew so much. And when I was going to have my my own child, I just wonder what primal feelings happen when you're holding your child, you know? And that was the thing that I was the most excited about because I knew that I could put in the work. I knew that I was going to, you know, change diapers and I was going to be up at night with my, my lady and my lady, big, big, big shout out to my lady. Cause she is a hero. Like what women do to bring miracles to life and to society, to, to humanity. Um, I would say, um, it's nothing more wondrous. And, and every man, you know, who thinks they do most of the work when the first couple of months are absolutely wrong. Like you really got to do everything they don't have to because sleep deprivation is a thing. They're so worried about feeding the baby. They forget to eat themselves. They forget to even drink a glass of water. Like it's like we, we really got to be present for that, fellas, um, because you don't want to go the first four months and your wife looks at you and resents you because you're sleeping while she's just breastfeeding every three hours at nighttime and she doesn't have a full night's rest. So big shout out to every man who does this. And even if you if you haven't and you're about to go into this transformative process, please realize that um, if she's up, just wake up with them. Trust me, like you don't want to build any resentment where she feels like she's alone in this. Um, and, you know, you could just be taking a nap. And it just, but the perception is magnified because the stakes are so high. Um, but yeah, something primal with that is, is, is what was excited for me. And, and, you know, I, I, I loved it so much. I mean, I was really excited to embrace that process and, and all that. So yeah, I was a lot, um, I've always been very thoughtful to take care of my own family since I was 18, 19, like I told you. So nothing much changed in the fact that like, I knew I was going to provide and, um, but it was all about legacy now, it's about what I leave, what I leave uh, with her before I go. Well, congratulations. So I know it's early to ask this question, but do you plan on introducing mental health and teaching her about it? Of course. I think it's important for her to uh, acknowledge immediately how she feels. Uh, I think it's important to also create an environment in where 
you know, everything's so magnified when they're babies, right? Like if you're hungry, you're yelling, you know, if you want something, you scream, you know, um, we have a very calm demeanor around the house. And even if your frequency is super loud and, and, and screaming, we don't, we don't shush her. We don't yell at her. We don't say, Hey, be quiet or don't throw that or whatever. We don't say no. We say, we don't do that. It's been nine months of the same process. And I think we're going to carry that over. Um, things are going to get a little more complicated, obviously, and that's going to be challenging for us to actually have a, a more Zen mentality about it. But that's where we work on communication and partnership, right? We want to make sure that we get in the game together. And But yeah, I think it's important that she acknowledges how she feels and she feels more than safe to say it out loud. And it's not just okay to not be okay. It's okay to acknowledge, but it's even more critical that you are proactive to fix it. Uh, and that's one thing I'm going to change, you know, because a lot of the philosophy is like, it's okay to not be okay right now. Mm. In this safe space of this podcast, everyone's allowed to be different and everyone's allowed to cope differently. My life has been more proactive as an immigrant. I want her to never forget that if she feels some type of way, she has to do something to fix it. That she can't just coast on just being okay, feeling a certain way and that it's okay to not feel you know, good right now. Okay, boy, if you're not feeling good right now, take a deep breath, take your moment, but what are you going to do about it after? That to me is what I feel like it's going to be important because I want her to also have the same like-mindedness with whoever she hangs out with, you know, people that are proactive about changing it, people that are proactive about feeling better because when we soak in that feeling for too long, it becomes somehow part of that identity, you know, somehow on, over time, it feels like this is how I feel about things, you know, but I think it's important that she stays wondrous, uh, curious and interested and that she experiences everything she wants to experience and that she becomes exactly what she wants to become. And, and I mean, I will pass down what my dad said to me when I was a really kid, when I was a little kid, he said to me, I was really uncomfortable with the communion like the confession and going to, you know, I'm a Catholic, growing up Catholic and I needed to confess to this priest of my sins. And I was a kid. I don't know what sins I could have been doing, you know? So I was really uncomfortable by that. And my dad said, look, I'm not going to force you to do anything that you feel uncomfortable with. The only thing I'm going to ask you to never forget and always do is if you make a mistake, truly acknowledge it, right? Realize that it was a mistake. If you're going to regret it, really regret it. And then do something to fix it. It was in three, right? So it was like that, just to kind of repeat it for everyone to make it a little clear. Like, you know, you make a mistake, acknowledge the mistake, truly regret it. And then the second thing was do something to fix it. At that point, proactively do something to fix it. And the third and most important thing that I never forgot was, and then do your absolute best to never make that same mistake again. So you make a mistake, truly regret it. Number two, do something to fix it. And number three, do your absolute best to never make that same mistake again. And I've lived guilt-free my whole life. You know, I, I don't carry any guilt from my childhood, you know, and there hasn't been any forgiveness that I've had to give in myself too much or, or, or having to forgive others. I've always just been in a mentality, let's squash this right now. Before it grows into a full rose garden of thorns, you know, let's, 
let's water the plant and know that it's, it's ours to cultivate. You said a lot of important things and in, in all of that. Uh, I want to go back to that first one where you said, like, it's okay to not be okay, but you also need to do something about it. And I think there is a big misconception out there that when people say it's okay to not be okay, that that means that it's okay to stay like that forever. And and it's not, you know, we want to be okay with feeling sad or anxious or angry. Like emotions are good. They tell us something about what we're going through. They tell us something about what we need to change. At the same time, they will stay there forever if we don't take a look at them and if we don't acknowledge them and if we don't uh, try to move forward from them. So I think um, going into what you said secondly, which is like, okay, acknowledge the mistake or whatever it is you're going through and then, you know, work towards it. Even if even if all you're doing is listening to this podcast, I mean, it's a mental health podcast. So if you're feeling bad and you're listening to this podcast, that counts, you know, that counts for something that you're doing uh, to try to get information because there's lots of tips, there's people's experiences and stories. It doesn't have to be this grand gesture, but um, I think it's very important to acknowledge and validate our feelings and know that, yeah, it's okay to to be sad and, and upset. And at the same time, it's like, okay, how can I move through this now? Like, what's my next step? And following people's stories or, or following tips from a friend or a therapist, uh, any anybody or anything, reading books, there's different ways that you can and do And don't these hold things. your breath. And don't hold your breath. Yeah, exactly. Keep breathing, keep breathing. You know, when you're working out and you're running and you're, you're, you're reaching your personal records and you're about to break them, what do you do? You keep getting oxygen, keep breathing through your nose and out through your nose, like out through your mouth, you know, like just continue to oxygenize your body. Your mind needs that in order to process and cope. So keep breathing, keep breathing. Don't hold your breath through it. You know, it's part of being, you know, a soul in an instrument that just allows you to travel the world, you know, but yeah, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you amazing tips, a lot of important information. I'm sure this is going to resonate with so many people. So thank you so much for being open and vulnerable with us. No problem. I'm so grateful that we were able to do it. So thank you for your time and, and the space you're providing for all of us to continue to, you know, to talk about this. What an amazing conversation and a bittersweet moment since it's our last podcast episode for the season. But it was such an honor to speak to Wilmer Valderrama today. I have been such a fan for such a long time. What was your favorite part or takeaway? Honestly, one of my favorite parts was listening to both you and him share your experiences and shared experience and just trying to actively listen to what you both went through and how it's impacted you and the different perspectives that you both had. He did give us so many actionable takeaways that I thought were incredible, but I enjoyed listening to his story and how he got to where he is today. How about you? Yeah, I, I loved sharing that with him too. Um, I, I wish I could have gone deeper, but we had so many questions that I, we wanted to, to ask him. And obviously we have a limited time, but it's it's nice because although we, we experienced similar things, um, the way we felt things was different. And I thought that was really cool because as I was expressing to him what I uh suffered because of what I saw and what I've been through. He had a different experience to it, which kind of solidifies, you know, everything we always talk about, how people are just different and, and you know, we have different things that make us respond to things differently. So I thought that was really powerful. And I also, like you, really enjoyed his 
perspective on how he's moved forward through adversity. Um, the tips that he gave at the end were really powerful. They're amazing. But going back to what you first said, I think for our audience in general, that's an important topic. Two very similar traumas can impact people in different ways. So as you're listening to all these episodes, regardless of who it is, even if you have a shared story, it is incredible to get the experience and feeling less alone by listening to someone. But what someone says in general overall may not always apply to you. So a lot of things that, for example, Wilmer talked about today, maybe like Micheline, you have a similar story to him, but your coping and your way of moving through adversity or moving forward may not look the same. Doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong or that you should be discouraged. Everybody's healing journey is different and everybody's timeline is different. And one of the things that comes to mind is we, I was talking about resilience factors with him too, in terms of like how he had the outlets of expression through art or music and, you know, his family and just validating for everyone listening that just missing one of those things can um, significantly change your perspective or your experience. And it's not it's not in any way to take away whatever trauma or pain you may be experiencing just because you have those things. You can have everything and still experience pain and hurt and suffering. Um, what we're saying is that sometimes just having one or more of those things can make it just slightly better for you for you in the long run, can make you feel a little bit less alone. And um, But again, like you said, Nadia, Everyone's different, so don't compare experiences, but hopefully you're getting a lot out of these episodes and feeling like you're not alone. Great point. One final thing I want to say that I loved about this episode is how he spoke about being a new father, but kind of shifted the conversation in terms of how he can better support his wife because he acknowledged how challenging it is to be um, a new parent in the world. And... We also just wanted to mention that similar to episodes in the past, this is coming from a heteronormative perspective, but the message still applies in terms of supporting your partner, regardless of who they are through something like this. Yeah, absolutely. Supporting your partner no matter what, like whether you're adopting a child or having a child, or maybe you don't have a child at all. But I love that he has that like systemic outlook and like his little family system on how, you know, it's changed him because we talked about fatherhood. And like you said, he shifted the conversation to how he was supporting his wife. And I think it's like dominoes, you know, like one thing affects another. And so it's just really powerful and um, important to, to talk about. So I agree. I thought that was a really cool thing he did too. Hope you all love this episode as much as we did. Thank you so much for listening today. This discussion is so important to ending the mental health stigma. If you want to help the mental health movement, you can do so by leaving a written review for this podcast to help it reach more people. If you want to dive deeper into these topics and learn more about mental health, make sure you subscribe and follow Micheline and Nadia's mental health podcast, Mind-Fully Healing, anywhere you stream your podcasts. 